This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Michael McCullough. He's a professor of psychology and a Cooper Fellow at the University of Miami, where he directs the Evolution and Human Behavior Laboratory. I spoke with him on August 29, 2008, from the studios of APM in St. Paul, Minnesota. He was in the studios of public radio station WLRN in Miami, Florida. This interview is included in our show, Getting Revenge and Forgiveness. Download the MP3 of that produced show at onbeing.org. Hello. Hello. Hi. Hi there. It's Krista Tippett. Hi, it's Mike McCullough. How are Hi. you? I'm glad to have you at the other end of the microphone. Likewise. <laughs> um, do you uh, do you have any questions of me before we begin? Are you familiar with the show at all? Yeah, I've heard it a few times. Okay. Um, so, I mean, do you have any anything I can answer or? I don't think so. Okay. Um, Colleen gave me a feel for some directions you want to take this, and that all yeah. sounds great with me. Okay. So. I, I think I just I want to talk to you about the things you're thinking about all the time anyway. And I, okay. I, I, like, I really like in your book the mix of um, uh, science and uh, social science and um, stories, real real world stories. And, um, yeah. and also even I would say this is kind of a characteristic of our show. Um, you know, even when you're not speaking about yourself, I think your personal passion and interest for the subject comes through that you, hmm. that you care about this, that you have a stake in it. So that's important to me too. And whoever you want to, um, emphasize that is fine as well. Great. Yeah. Sorry. That's true. Somebody's saying, what are you saying, Mitch? No. I'm fine. I think we're okay. Okay. All right. I uh it's Friday afternoon and it's been a long week and uh so you sound really energetic and I'm hoping to I'm going to soak that up from you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's just another day down here in Nirvana for us. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> um okay, well, should we, can we go? Mitch, do you think? Okay. And it's not this is not live, so we don't have to yep. um, we get to have a real uh, conversation, which can be messy and circular if it needs to be. Sure. Okay. Um, I do uh, like to start wh- wh- whoever I'm speaking with, whatever we're speaking about. Um, I'd like to ask you to just tell me something about the religious background of your life, of your childhood. Was there one? I was raised Southern Baptist. Me too. Uh, and. <laughs> Uh, attended a Southern Baptist church with my family all the way into high school, mm-hmm. actually, uh, into junior high and the early high school years. Okay. Uh, yeah. Then that's that was uh, uh, a formative, a formative fifteen or sixteen years there. Okay. Um, and then, how did you come to be working academically at the convergence of? psychology and religious studies. I mean, it seems to me you are really a psychologist, but you're also teaching in the Department of Religious Studies. Is that right? I I do. I teach a course in in our religious studies department over at the University of Miami. Mm -hmm. Uh, I saw with my own eyes that religion was important to the decisions people make and the choices they have and the emotions they feel. And I just knew that somewhere in the field of psychology, there was somebody who studied that. And that <laughs> there was right. 
somebody doing science on that. <laughs> and so I really wanted to do that uh, as a psychology major in, in university myself. I, I just knew that if I looked hard enough, I could find somebody who could, who could teach me how to, how to do science on that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't really part of the curriculum as offered, the standard mm-hmm. curriculum. Not at all. And in mm-hmm. fact, one of, one of the things that sort of surprised me um, was how hard it was to actually find somebody who was willing to discuss psychology and religion in the same breath. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, psychology has uh, traditionally been pretty skeptical of religion and has, has tended to turn um, kind of a suspicious eye toward the motives of, of people who are religious and uh, you know, I'd say not without cause. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the same token, I think religious okay, people. Okay, sorry, tended- we're we're getting a little a funny uh, sound in the recording, and we're not hmm. sure. Did you hear anything? I know, I know. No. Okay, yeah, we're hearing it at this end. You you faded in and out and got. Okay, Mitch says it's what a dirty pot. Oh. Whatever that uh, means, it's an engineering yeah, hi, term. Hi, hi, it's Peter. Hi. Uh, uh, let's. I hmm. We haven't experienced that problem with this console, and I haven't been adjusting the pot. I don't think. Pod. Okay. Pot. All right. Pot. pot. You no, know, pot would make sense. Okay. Uh, potentiometer. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I did. I may have edged you down just a little bit, and that. Let's, uh, Mitch. If you're listening, tell me if, if this is. I'll, I'll be quiet and tell me if this is making any noise. Did you hear anything there? Hmm. Hey, Mitch, yeah. what you you did hear something? Okay, then I'll leave I'll leave this alone. It's just that the level seemed to need a, to need a little adjustment here, and I brought them down a little bit. So I'll I'll leave them alone now. I know where they are, and let's see if we can continue without problems. Okay. Just let me know if you need. Yeah, me. it wasn't constant. It w- it just suddenly started happening intermittently, last okay. last minute or two. Oh, okay. So um, yeah. Well, you know, and from you know i've had conversations these years with people working in many disciplines and i mean it's i think it's true across our disciplines in in medicine in general in science in general in social sciences in law schools right that religion was kind of mm-hmm. written out of the curriculum and now there do seem to there do seem to be people coming up who are saying well this is part of life so how might it be integrated that's right mm-hmm. and one of the things that's happening in in psychology is I think over the last 10 years, given the turn of geopolitical events, scientists of all stripes, social scientists of all stripes, are, are finally realizing that they simply can't ignore uh, the religious motivation anymore. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you want to understand violence, terrorism, uh, prejudice... Um, the kind of things that send nations to war, you really do have to understand what religion is about, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is not always easy because we social scientists tend to be not very religious ourselves. Right. So it's uh, it's really an exciting time to be interested in in all things oh, religious. Oh, sorry, be- sorry. I'm, this is great. And uh, Mitch is saying that we're also having some... So I'm sorry about this. Mm, that's okay. Um, I don't want to lose anything. He, he doesn't want to lose it. Okay, yeah. he's checking one thing. I'm sorry. <laughs> no problem. Where are you today? Um, we are in St. Paul. Oh, great. And the Republican Convention is coming here next week, and our yep. building is getting progressively locked down and secured, and it's a little bit 
eerie. <laughs> hmm. What? No, why is that? Well, why because you... the convention is right here in downtown St. Paul, uh, where, where our headquarters are, where our studios are. Uh-huh. And so the whole downtown is becoming secured. And then um, we're going to be... You're worried about protesters. You're worried well, about... I, I don't even think it's protesters. I think it's... You know, Secret Service, um, you know, securing the perimeter of where the convention is going to be. And then also our building is going to be used by all kinds of journalists. And so there are security guards at every door. And it's a very strange Mm -hmm. atmosphere. Um, Mm -hmm. So what do you think, Mitch? You want to hear? Can you? um, you Okay. Um, All right. So you were saying people are six. You don't want to hear anything substantive. Okay, what did what did you have for lunch, Mike? Oh, you know, I had uh, three soft tacos today, and it was a religious experience. <laughs> I know. How's that? Um, well, uh, know. It, it wasn't really. I just <laughs> thought I'd keep with the theme of the show a little okay. bit, if I could. <laughs> they were they were they were just okay. Okay, you're in Miami, is that right? Yeah, that's right. How long have you been there? Oh, uh, this is. Um, the beginning of our seventh year mm-hmm. in, in Miami, um, and we've we've really loved it. Okay, all right. I think we can keep going now. So you're saying? Okay. Do you remember where you were? You were saying that it's yeah, an interesting I, time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think one of the things you're seeing in in psychology and sociology and really a lot of the social sciences is that religion and its effects on people's behavior and their minds and there, the way they think about themselves and, and other people in the world just can't be ignored anymore. Mm-hmm. So I see a lot of, when I go to scientific meetings, I meet a lot of psychologists running around trying to get get educated <laughs> about what religion is. I really do, you know, and uh, some of the large, the best attended um, symposia that I I see at scientific meetings now are about religion. Mm, interesting, and, mm-hmm. and it's so odd because <laughs> you know, ten years ago, this this would that that wouldn't be what you'd see. Those right. would be some of the most poorly attended meetings. They'd be scheduled for nine thirty on Sunday morning. You know, when most people have already gone back home. Right. Uh, you know, uh, but that's just not the case anymore. Uh-huh. Um, this is religion is too important now for for social scientists to ignore. Mm-hmm. And and you are doing your research, or particularly this book of yours, is um, focuses on the subjects of revenge and forgiveness, which are important categories in geopolitical affairs and human life, and also um, both have a real religious resonance. Um, and I I think one of the in, important themes that comes through that I just you know I think it's important for us to talk about to lay the groundwork for. What you have to say, what you're learning is that we, and I mean, you know, we lay people, citizens, uh, consumers of science and journalism, have to open our imaginations to think in new ways about subjects like revenge and forgiveness, that there are certain boxes into which we've put these things. Um, And, you know, I have to say that for myself, um, something I've thought a lot about in recent years is how media, you know, my profession of journalism is complicit complicit in this. Um, mm-hmm. Because in the news, the headlines 
tend to focus on and tell and retell stories of atrocity, murder, and violent mm-hmm. revenge, you know, based on real or perceived uh, fears or hurts. And these are, in fact, you know, exceptional stories, but, but cumulatively, because they tend to dominate headlines, they skew our sense of what is normal about human nature and to be expected. And mm. then, you know, what you kind of helped me see is that, um, that, that this is, in a sense, a reflection of some of the ways, evolu- you know, evolutionary biology has, um, has tended to think of this as well. That's right. I, one of the things that got me writing Beyond Revenge, actually, was, was a dissatisfaction with the kind of boxes that we all tend to put Mm-hmm. revenge and forgiveness in as as human dispositions. So if you if you turn on the news, you see certainly senseless acts of revenge. Um, but we don't really know what to do with those once once we see those acts. What are the stories we tell ourselves about what causes those acts? Um, what kind of judgments do we pass about the people who commit them? Um, do we demonize them? Do we call them animals? Do we call them people who um, must have been born in a backwards society, uh, some sort of sick culture? Uh, those, those, I think, do tend to be the kind of conclusions we draw. And the more I read and the more I tried to dig deeply into not just the social sciences but also the biological sciences, as you say, the, the, the worse that story really seemed to fit. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It, as, it, as, it, as it seems to me, revenge is much more deeply etched into the human mind than, than those kind of stories would, would, would suggest. Right. Um, and, you know, I just want to, I want to try to understand this because you really talk about two different um, Kind of preconceptions, or I, I can't tell if they're different or if they if they converge, and I just don't get it. But on the one hand, there's this idea that we can get that you know that human nature really is brutish, and that um, you know positive characteristics like generosity and love and forgiveness are exceptions to human nature. And then on the other hand, there is this what you just described, kind of what you call the disease model of revenge. Um, mm-hmm. This, which is more compatible with the way religious uh, traditions tend to think about revenge in the modern era, at least, um, and kind of the therapeutic model. Now, do those do those ways of thinking come together, or do they both do they form us at the same time? Yeah, here, here's what I I think we we're up against. Okay, um, if if you go back to the great you know go all the way back to the greek tragedies what what you see the the greeks grappling with is why revenge is so disruptive to their efforts to establish social order hmm. right mm-hmm. see and you know you have you have these amazing stories right uh, medea she's so angry at her husband for his his unfaithfulness to her that she destroys her own children right as a way of trying to get back at him, and and so it goes on and on throughout these these great works of of Western literature, mm-hmm. and I, I think you know fast forward to Elizabeth, Elizabethan literature, again you find revenge kind of being depicted as this 
force that gets the better of people and um, possesses their minds and gets them to do things that are going to essentially be their un- their own undoing. And I think I think what we today here in 2008 tend to think from these these images, which of course trickle into you know more popular media. Right. And there's uh, a Lord movie, of the movies Flies, and novels and West so, Side Story or some of the ones you mentioned. There, these of, of course. Of, yeah. The yeah, Hatfields uh, and Max. the McCoys. <laughs> yeah, that's right. right. Mad, right. M- Mad Max. Uh-huh. Um, let's see. Uh, Death Wish. You know, right, and, right. And, and on and on and on. Uh, is that re- revenge is a, is a curse or a disease or some kind of poison that gets into minds and um, sort of takes control of them and then mm-hmm. wrecks individuals and wrecks societies and wrecks families. So I think that that is the the metaphor that we implicitly sort of have about revenge, this thing that we're kind of cursed with. Mm-hmm. And I think if you, if, if you take revenge as this poison or this curse or this disease, then that affects how you think about what forgiveness is as well. Right. And so I think the thing that we tend to assume about forgiveness is that it's a cure, right? That's, that mm-hmm. someone came along, some, some Einstein of the moral realm, Right, a religious leader or a spiritual leader or some uh, wonderfully wise person in history, and discovered how powerful forgiveness could be as an antidote to this this toxin or this poison. Right. Uh, and so we're left, really, I think, now thinking about revenge and forgiveness as, uh, uh, in the case of revenge, something gone wrong in humanity, and forgiveness being the thing we have to learn to do. Because we don't know how to do it naturally, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we have to we have to teach each other how to do it in order to contain right, we this, think it this is disease of revenge. Extraordinary, then. Re- That's right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. you don't know how to do it on your own. You need to read some health self help books, or you need to go to a psychotherapist, mm-hmm. or you need to go over here in your solitude and make yourself learn how to do this thing. Right. Um, so, I mean, so one of the things you seem to be about is reclaiming the normalcy of both revenge and uh, forgiveness as a part of human nature. Um, and so, I mean, I'd like to talk about revenge first, if we could, and, and, and do it that way. I mean, what, you know, talk to me about what you know from your own research, from the other vast psychological research you've studied and what we're learning about, about brain chemistry, about what... Why, why revenge is in us and what purpose it has served, even in, in evolutionary terms. Yep. Here's, here's what you see uh, all throughout the animal kingdom. And, and this is where I really got interested. Right. Yeah. This, is, this is what kind of hooked me into doing the research for Beyond Revenge. Um, if you look at what causes animals to harm each other, um, what, you, what you find is that they get some things out of that, right? So let's say um, I'm uh, a chimpanzee or some particular type of monkey. Um, if I harm you because you've just harmed me, I seem to get some protection out of that. So one of the very important functions it seems to serve in non-human animals is an ability to defend ourselves from future harm. Mm-hmm. And the logic is pretty simple. Um, revenge acts like a tax, right? Mm. If you want to take something from me, you have to worry that 
I might harm you back in retaliation. And that acts like a tax. So you take, you take the resource from me, right? Okay. You take some really valuable item of food from me. Um, if I harm you back, that's sort of you have to deduct that from the value of the benefit, right? Okay. So um, the, the, the process of natural selection can see how this works. And if individuals differ in their ability or their willingness to retaliate so that these individuals that do retaliate um, can deter those individuals that they live with from harming them a second time, then they're going to be less likely to be taken advantage of in the future relative to those suckers out there, those Mm -hmm. doormats who will let you pick on them. So the blind force of natural selection can, in animals, non, no, non-human animals, can create vengeful creatures simply on the basis of the fact that vengeance will protect you from being taken advantage of systematically over and over and over again. Okay. Talk about some of that research that captivated you early on, uh, well, the, this research on animals. Sure. Uh, one, one study that really got my attention was a study on chimpanzees, which showed that if a chimpanzee is harmed by an individual that it's living with, um, it has the ability to, to remember who that individual is and target aggression back at that individual in the 10 minutes, 20 minutes, hour later. And for most people, and certainly for me when I started working on this, I was surprised to know that chimpanzees had these kinds of mental abilities, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. They can recognize the individuals they live with. They have memory. They they can process harm and help, right? So they they if if you harm a chimpanzee, they remember you. They they know that you're the one who did it, Mm -hmm. and they can keep sort of something up in their heads that says. I, I need to go back and harm that individual when I get the opportunity. Hmm. And so, yes, and, and, and what you find is that if you harm, uh, if you're one of these chimpanzees living in this group and you harm an individual, your chances of being harmed back by that individual in the next 10, 20 minutes increase by something like 300%. Hmm. So it's, if you watch this unfolding, you know, if you sat and watched chimpanzees in... Um, in one of their living areas, um, what what you would see is A harms B, right? Alan goes and harms Bob. And if you watch long enough with a keen enough eye, Bob's going to come back around when he gets his chance, and he's going to harm Alan in, in retaliation. So that that was so astonishing to me, right, from the, from the outset, that I had to learn more. And I, I wanted to know, where else do you see this in the animal kingdom? Um, you see it in other kinds of, of, a, uh, of, uh, of uh, primates, such as, as one type of monkey that I like a lot. Um, this is a, a monkey called the Japanese macaque. Okay. And Japanese macaques are um, very status-conscious individuals, and they don't they're very intimidated by power. Let's just put it that way. Okay. They're very intimidated by power. So if you're a high-ranking Japanese macaque and you harm a low-ranking Japanese macaque, that low-ranking individual is not going to harm you back, right? It's just too intimidating. It's too anxiety-provoking, right? But what they do instead, and this is a, it still astonishes me, is they will find a relative of that high-ranking individual and go seek that that low-ranking cousin out or nephew and harm him in retaliation. Really? 
Yeah. Hmm. It's, it's So it's as if they're saying, you know, I can't get you back. I'm not powerful enough to get you back. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to go harm your nephew. Now, that does or, sound like human behavior, doesn't it? Right. And, and, uh-huh. and here's the kicker uh-huh. is when they're harming this, this nephew, right, most of the time they're doing it while the high-ranking individual is watching. Huh. So they do it in plain view. They're not trying to hide hmm. this retaliation. They're, they're, they're displaying it. They want the high-ranking individual to know that, you know, you can harm me. I know you can harm me. I know you're more powerful than I am. But rest assured, hmm. I know how to get at what you care about hmm. and what you value. You know, um, I, I had this realization a few years ago when we did a program on the death penalty, which was a really disturbing program to work on because the more you get into that subject, the more complexity it seems to take on. Um, and I remember, um, you know, it, it, again, it's kind of like you said, it, 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 it might seem simple, but it seems so stunning to me to, to realize that the criminal justice system and, and even and especially the death penalty in history was, um, was progress because before there was any kind of criminal justice system, uh, human societies regulated themselves by precisely that kind of revenge you're, yeah. you're describing. That revenge was the criminal justice and system and still is in some, in some places, I guess. Th- throughout most of human history, uh, we have not lived in complex societies with governments and states and law enforcement and prisons. And right contracts that we could enforce in a court to, to get people to do what they agreed to do. Mm-hmm. We, we lived in very small groups of individuals, and there were no high-level institutions like that. So the, the mechanism that individuals relied upon to protect themselves and to protect their loved ones and to protect their property was fear of retaliation and if mm-hmm. they could if they could broadcast that fear of retaliation to, to the individuals they lived with to their neighbors to the people on the other side of the hill and you could cultivate a reputation as a hothead right mm. if you could if you could display that kind of behavior so people knew not to mess with you that was like an insurance policy it was like an insurance policy right. so so this this and, and and you're absolutely right, Krista, about the fact that in a lot of the world, this is still, still the, law enforcement. Right. This is law it's enforcement. Still, uh-huh. It is. And, and any time you disrupt that system, that system of government, that system of policing, that system of law enforcement, so people can't trust that their interests are going to be protected – that re- desire for revenge comes back, and people will take revenge back into their own hands to protect themselves. And and you know we're well we're we're, we're so this is although this is um, we're talking about retaliation we're talking about violence of some kind we're we're also talking about violence that 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 can serve a purpose or may be perceived as the only method for kind of keeping the peace or restoring balance. Um, and I think you're also saying in your research that, that, and also in terms of what we know about the brain, that the, the emotions, the reactions that arise in response to grievance um, mm-hmm. are also, we are hardwired to have those reactions, that they, that they serve a purpose. I mean, I remember Sister Helen Prejean saying to me when we did that work on death penalty, and you know, she's a great opponent of the death penalty, but she said, you know, yes. anger is a moral response, you know? That's right. <laughs> uh, 
yes, it, it certainly is. It, it is the law. It, anger in response to injustice uh-huh. is as reliable a human emotional response as happiness is to winning the lottery, hmm. right? Hmm. Or grief is to losing a loved one. Mm-hmm. And this is this is again. I, I, let me give you an example from from some research Great. because it because it actually goes deeper than this. People tend to to feel guilty in in our society when they feel anger or the desire for for vengeance. Let's say that a lot of people do, right? They 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 they're not comfortable when they feel like, boy, I'd really like to see that person harmed right, because right. of what he he or she did to me. Um, but to get to that naturalness question again, it, I. I, I, unco- I uncovered research that, again, was completely astonishing to me. If you look at the brain of somebody who has just been harmed by someone, right, they've been ridiculed or harassed or insulted, we can put those people into technology that allows us to see what their brains are doing, right? So we can look at sort of what your brain looks like on revenge, right? Mm-hmm. You know, this is your brain on revenge. It looks exactly like the brain of somebody who is thirsty and is just about to get a sweet drink hmm. to drink, hmm. or somebody who's hungry, who's about to get a piece of chocolate to eat. It's like the satisfaction of a craving. It is exactly like that. It, it is literally a craving. Hmm. What you see is a high activation in the brain's reward system. And what this seems to be doing is compelling us to toward a goal, which is the goal of harming in kind the person who has harmed us. So, again, this is this is one of the messages. I it's important for me to try to get across. Um, the The desire for revenge does not come from some sick, dark part of how our minds operate. Mm-hmm. It is as natural as um, the desire to get something to eat when you're hungry, mm-hmm. right? It's it's as wholesome as uh, you know striving to be an Olympic medalist, right? It's it's a craving to solve a problem and accomplish a goal. Mm-hmm. And when when people do accomplish that goal, when they see their victim their their offenders suffering, it does create satisfaction and pleasure. Hmm. And and I think that this brain system is is doing this job again because this is the job that natural selection rewarded. Um, Individuals who had some motivation to harm individuals who harmed them did better in this game of evolution that the biologists write about. Okay. So, you know, we don't have a Hatfields and McCoys spectacle in the United States these days, but um, you actually write a lot about school shootings and how you think about this revenge motivation um, in that context, and you also talk about how, you know, we, I would say, especially with this late, with the Virginia Tech shooting, which had so much attention very recently, you know, there was a lot of talk about him, his mental, the mental illness of the person who perpetrated that. And, and you, you still want to, you, you still want us to take the notion of revenge in a nuanced way, seriously, um, even when mental illness is perhaps implicated. So um, t- t- describe that for me. Right. So 
this, the Secret Service did a very comprehensive study uh, a couple of years ago of all of the school place shootings that had taken place in the United States between something like 1974 and 2000. And so, they, you know, this is an organization that's really good at assessing threat, right? Right. Um, as, you, as you know, being in St. Paul this week, um, that's what they do. They try to figure out where threats lie. And so they went back to try to study these, these, these cases of, of school place shootings. Who were the players? Who were the, who, were, who were the killers? What were their circumstances? What were they like as people? What was their mental state? And what they found was that uh, in s- over 70% of those cases, one of the, one of the factors that was p- prompting those individuals to take their guns or their knives to school and, and shoot security guards or their classmates or their teachers was a desire for revenge, some kind of grudge they were holding about something And that's something the way they would describe it? They themselves use the word revenge or talk A grudge? Uh-huh. Uh, th- yeah, revenge or mm-hmm. grudges. I mean, they, they, they looked pretty extensively at okay. all kinds of case materials, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, some of these people would ultimately take their own lives, so right. you don't have the after the fact, but you, you know what they told other people or right. you know what they left behind. But some of it's interviews. I mean, some of these, mm-hmm. these shooters do, do survive and they, they get interrogated and okay. they give statements. So, so revenge, the desire for revenge is, right, that's, that's seven out of the ten cases. So what, what kind of frustrates me when I see people talking about something like the Virginia Tech uh, shooting from last year is that the two, the, the two causes that people always run to are mental illness and the ready ready readily available guns okay right and both so don't get me wrong these are both issues <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. right they're both real issues it's as a university professor I, I can tell you that university administrators are by law in kind of a rough place regarding what they can and can't say about students at their universities mm-hmm. because because federal laws give high high protections for students privacies so there is a real rub against uh, for administrators and teachers and professors uh, to not really know what they what they should be passing along to law enforcement or to other uh, administrators and so forth. Um, so that's an issue, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the 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 loopholes that allow people like Sung Hee Cho to go to gun shows in Virginia and pick up guns. Um, very easily, and then take them to um, the, the halls of Virginia Tech, and then shoot students and teachers, is also a serious problem. Um, but most people with mental illness, and even most people with mental illnesses with guns, don't take them to their universities or their schools to kill people. Right. So, so what I want to say is, let's dig a little bit deeper into the psychology of these shooters and these killers and figure out what is it that they've got these grudges about. Sometimes the grudges are completely meaningless. Um, they make no sense right. and they clearly arise out of uh, insanity. That seems to be the case with Sung Hee Cho okay. at uh, Virginia Tech as best I understand it. Um, the, the, the kinds of resentments and, and desires for revenge he had were just completely misdirected. I mean. 
to mm-hmm. the extent that you could call ever call these you know, these sorts of acts justified, which right. you never can. Right. There was an irrationality to his, and yet I still wonder if 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 someone knew about this resentment that this particular student had, and knowing that he had guns easily available, and that he had this history of mental illness, mm-hmm. would the three of those facts been enough to? to flag this individual as somebody that needed to be right. dealt with quickly and, and way before something like this could have taken place. So a lot of the um, resentments, that the nature of those resentments, as I understand the research you summarize, is, is about um, bullying, right? And yeah. feeling um, marginal, socially marginalized, which uh, I guess you, you could say that's a kind of... Uh, really mundane rivalry that happens in the context of American schools and in on playgrounds and at recess. Oh sure. You're I mean the 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 story of the the big uh, the big kids, the popular kids, um, oppressing the small kids, mm-hmm. the unpopular kids, the misfits. I mean this is this is something you see in I think in all schools. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think it's a necessarily just an American problem either. Right. Um, so, and, and you're absolutely right that, that bullying tends to be the precipitant for a lot of these school place shootings. In fact, this same Secret Service study found that in 61% of those cases, um, the perpetrators had a, had a history re- in, in recent times of being bullied at their schools. So, you know, if you think about the, being the victim of bullying, what you've got is day in and day out often a feeling of fear, a feeling of humiliation, a fear of insecurity, an inability to uh, obtain justice for yourself. And if you don't have a sense of access to the school administration or a sense of confidence that somebody's going to help you deal with your problems, what seems to be happening with many of these in these terribly unfortunate incidents is that that desire for revenge gets turned into lethal action. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's hard to talk about this, um, even to see, to want to explain it, because it, it does sound like maybe we're justifying it. We're saying these are natural vindictive impulses, and if only those ki- other kids hadn't bullied them, right? Right, that's and, right. And we have the same problem or a similar problem, perhaps magnified, and I'm talking about we in American culture, talking about the motivations of terrorists. Because, yeah. right? Because what none of us want to do is... Uh, is justify that or say that that anything that could have happened would justify airplanes crashing into buildings or bombs going off in marketplaces. But right. I'm very curious about how you, with all of the research you've done, um, have thought about this subject of revenge, both in terms of terrorism these last few years and also in terms of, um, you know, the American, the Western response to acts of terror, which in some ways, I guess you could say it's a classic uh, grievance, revenge cycle, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, uh, if you, there's a very interesting letter that you can find on the internet. And I, I believe it's been authenticated as, as having been written by Osama bin Laden in 2002. Uh, I think he call, it's, it's called The Letter to America. And if, what he's trying to do in that letter, uh, someone may tell me this isn't authentic, um, but no one has so far, uh, is that 
What he's trying to do is explain what 9-11 was all about. And if you read that letter, you don't even have to read it carefully, actually. If you read it even uh, casually, what jumps out at you is that the, the grammar of that incident, right, the logic that was driving 9-11 was a, was a, was a logic of violence, uh, a logic of, reta- pardon me, a logic of retaliation. Mm-hmm. Can I start over with that, Yeah, Krista? well, yeah, okay, yeah, sure. If you read that letter by Osama bin Laden, what you find is very clearly that his understanding of why, why he acted the way he did was that he was seeking revenge against the West for Muslim oppression in the Middle East. So that's an uncomfortable thing to talk about, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because that points the finger at Western action as the, the cause of, of 9-11. And none of us want to think about that. I don't want to think about it. I don't like it. Um, I don't like it's not a satisfactory explanation by any means. And yet, if we ignore the, that explanation, can we really understand what gets in the mind of a terrorist that, again, causes them to pick up razor knives, box cutters, and get on planes and take flying lessons and get into cockpits and fly planes into buildings. Mm-hmm. We, can, we can stand on the side and use the language of incomprehensible evil to try to make sense of, of okay. something like mm-hmm. 9-11, right? We can, we can think about... Uh, those actions as 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 having been pure evil and and they they were evil uh, let's mm-hmm. let's not forget that mm-hmm. but to stop there leaves you not really knowing any more than you did before you started you, you certainly don't know you're no better off in trying to stop the next 911 um, so I, I really do want to push people i want to push myself to go beyond simply calling somebody or someone pure evil to getting to their motivations. So in the same way, I want to understand what motivates workplace or school place shooters to pick up guns and kill their coworkers or classmates. I want to understand what, what makes terrorist recruiters successful in recruiting new recruits to, go, to strap bombs to their bodies mm-hmm. and then blow up buses in Tel Aviv. And so, <clears throat> so what the, the particular research you do um, helps you see the the naturalness, the potency of these instincts for for uh, vindictive behavior, for revenge. Right? Is that what you're That's saying? Right. And so That's you exactly see that saying. as an incredibly powerful part of human experience that is there. And so you're saying that has to be taken seriously, um, which is quite a different matter than justifying or not justifying something. I'm just, is that right? Am I, yeah. If, okay. if, if, you, if, you don't, if you don't take seriously the naturalness of, of human beings' impulses to seek revenge when they're harmed and oppressed, you really can't understand what these events are about from the actor's perspective. And I don't think you're in a very good position to avoid them in the future. Okay. All right. Well, um... And then I guess what is especially intriguing about your work as well, and perhaps more, even more surprising, even kind of takes us out of our boxes um, than the fact that resent, revenge is natural, is that you are really suggesting also from a scientific perspective that forgiveness is also 
that we have a forgiveness instinct, an aptitude for forgiveness, and that that has been crafted by natural selection just like revenge. So That's, tell me about that. Yeah, this is... This is uh, I expected to find, frankly, less research as I dug through hundreds of scientific articles on the naturalness of forgiveness. I expected to find that... Um, well, maybe I could tell a good story about it, but there just wasn't anything there that I could sink my teeth into. But boy, was I wrong. Um, as it turns out, a lot of biologists have been trying to figure out what allows human beings to be the cooperative creatures that we are. We're, we're cooperative with each other in a way that really makes us pretty unique among mammals, for sure. You know, we cooperate with our our relatives, lots of animals do that, but we, we go further and we cooperate with people we've never met. We cooperate with people um, that we're not related to. And by virtue of our abilities to cooperate with each other, we've, we can build magna, you know, magnificent cities and radio stations and we can put on radio shows and do all kinds of wonderful things. But that ability to cooperate is a very difficult thing to explain through natural selection. Huh. But one of, the, one of the ingredients you have to have to get individuals to cooperate with each other is a tolerance for mistakes. Okay? Hmm. Interesting. You just can't get it. You can't mm-hmm. get organisms that are willing to hang in there with each other through thick and thin and make good things happen despite the, the roadblocks and the, and the bumps along the way if they aren't willing to tolerate each other's mistakes. Hmm. Sometimes if we're uh, cooperatively hunting, let's say we're, we're some sort of animal that, that works together to hunt, sometimes I'm going to let you down. And it, maybe it's not even intentional, but I'm going to take my, I'm going to get distracted and I'm going to make a mistake. And if you take each of those mistakes as the last word about my cooperative disposition, you might just give up, and so no cooperation gets done. So really, our ability, and, and across the animal kingdom, many animals' ability to cooperate with each other and make things happen that they can't do on their own is undergirded by an ability to forgive each other for occasional defections and mistakes. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, here's a, a passage from your book, which, I again, a lot of this just seems so basic, doesn't it, when you, when you articulate it, but it's things we don't see or think about. I mean, you, you know, you said that everyday acts of forgiveness are incredibly common among people, between people who know each other. Um, right. That, you know, we think of forgiveness as these heroic acts, and there are always these heroic examples of forgiveness, but you said, you know, it's, you think, we think of it as this balm for great wounds, but you said, yet in daily life, forgiveness is more often like a Band-Aid on a scrape, and at first glance, perhaps only slightly more interesting, but of course, in, uninteresting doesn't mean unimportant. Right, right. And that, this, this, again, was part of, part of my attempt to do violence, I guess, to this metaphor of forgiveness as this difficult thing that we have to consciously practice and learn um, because we don't know how to do it on their own. Mm-hmm. I I forgive my my seven year old son every day, <laughs> right? <laughs> right, um, right? Because he's an active, inquisitive seven year old who sometimes accidentally elbows me in the mouth when we're cuddling and sometimes puts crayons on the walls. And, and yet 
it's it seems demeaning to call it to even forgiveness, call it forgiveness right right I, I, mm-hmm. I wouldn't dignify it with the term forgiveness it's just what you do with your children mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. you you accept their limitations and, and you move on um, he broke my tooth once when I was drinking out of a water glass <laughs> right, you know I mean right. parents have a million of these stories right, right? right. You, you don't but you don't you don't put any effort into forgiving mm-hmm. you just it naturally happens, and you move on. Mm-hmm. And there's a great evolutionary story about why why it comes so easy in those kind of circumstances, too. Mm-hmm. And which is pretty obvious, I guess, that it makes sense. I mean, it's, it's the way you keep moving through daily life, right? Yeah. I mean, evolution wasn't kind to individuals who would seek revenge against their genetic relatives. Okay. Bottom line, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So we have this natural tolerance for the misbehavior of of our children, right? Um, so it is at at that level you're talking about incredibly mundane, right? We put no effort into it. It happens every day a thousand times. We would we would never even give it a second thought, and yet we do it over and over again. Mm-hmm. And you know, you you do talk about some amazing examples of forgiveness, of public forgiveness. Um, one of them being Bud Welch, who. Many people um, heard about after the Oklahoma City bombings, he, his beloved daughter was killed and he um, forgave Timothy McVeigh, got to know Timothy McVeigh's father. Um, but I sometimes think that those kinds of examples that, that do make the news, like the, like the bombing, um, also exalt forgiveness as something that's really beyond the reach of most of us most of the time. You know, it, we kind of wish, we hope that we would be that gracious, perhaps, but you're, it almost feels um, superhuman. Right. And if, if you look at Bud Welch and you look at that story from the outside and you ask yourself, how can this man whose daughter was killed in this terrible explosion um, ever get over his rage, we, from the outside, we have a really hard time imagining that. But if you look at the story of, of Bud Welch, actually what you find is he had a lot of help along the way. Hmm. And if you look at the story very carefully, you can actually learn a lot about how the human mind evolved to forgive and what kind of conditions... E- activate that instinct in human minds because a lot of those insta- a lot of those conditions ended up falling into place for bud mm-hmm. um, so um, in fact he he doesn't talk about forgiveness even for himself in that case as having been some massive struggle. I mean, perhaps it was, but I, I've, I've read what I could about this extraordinary well, it was man. an incremental also wasn't it I mean it, it gets reported as an as an act, but in fact, yeah. it was a process. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. And and along the way, there were there were events that he he actually made happen for himself that turned forgiveness into one of these things that can be easier. Um, for example, as 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 perhaps you know, he actually sought out uh, Timothy McVeigh's father and visited him one day at the McVeigh home and had this moment, he, he describes, when he saw Timothy's picture on the mantle. Mm-hmm. It was a high school graduation picture. 
and they were just making small talk. And 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 Bud said to to McVeigh's father, he said, "God, that's a good-looking kid." And the tears just began pouring out of of the elder McVeigh. Mm-hmm. And what what he realized then was that here was another father on the verge of losing a son, losing a child. And that immediate experience of, of sympathy and compassion went a tremendous way in facilitating the forgiveness process for Bud. And it, so, so right off the bat, this real human interaction starts to turn forgiveness from something difficult to do to something that's easier to do because this compassion has happened naturally in the course of real human interaction, and then suddenly forgiveness is a little easier. So this is getting to one of the really important points I think you make with your work, that if we can understand this forgiveness instinct and how, um, that even understanding it in terms of evolution, um, that we can start to create conditions where it can be empowered, right? So let's, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating idea, and I wonder how you, would, how you would want to start talking about what that would look like if we started doing that collectively. Right. I, I see five ingredients, okay, and th- that are necessary to take a mind, take a human mind, that is aggrieved, that is suffering because of harms it has suffered, and switch it over to a, a inclination to forgive. So I, I actually think there are these five slider switches in the mind. And if you can slide them in, in the directions of forgiveness, you'll get forgiveness even where you suspect from the outside that, that the desire for revenge was more likely. Okay. The first is safety. Human beings are naturally prone to forgive individuals that they feel safe around. So if we have an offender that is apologizing in a way that seems heartfelt and convincing and has really convinced us that they can't and won't harm us in the same way again, okay, that's a point for forgiveness, right? Point on the forgiveness side. Again, the, the human mind evolved for forgiveness to be something worth its while. Mm-hmm. And we're not likely to be an organism. Any successful organism is, it, organism is unlikely to have a mechanism in it that says, you know, just keep stepping on my neck. It's right, okay. Right, right. right. So, But if you can convince me that you're safe, right, that I don't have to worry about hi- being harmed in the same way a second time, maybe I'm willing to move a little bit forward. But it seems like that would be the hardest um, condition or assumption to put in place in the context of many of the worst cycles of revenge um, in our world. Sometimes, sometimes safety comes through things like the rule of law, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes safety comes through you as a small business owner dusting off that employee manual that you, you you know you had somebody do for you a long time ago that you you have to give out to your employees but you don't think about anymore and 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 asking yourself what is in here that would instruct an employee on what to do if they were being systematically harassed by a coworker mm-hmm. that would convince this employee 
that their grievance would be taken seriously, mm-hmm. that, that an investigation would happen, and that if there was a real serious infraction, it would be dealt with in a way that restored that employee's sense of safety, right? Mm-hmm. Sim- these are simple kinds of things that anybody can do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what can you do in your associations, that your condo association, you know, mm-hmm. when somebody has a grievance? What do you have in place that makes people feel secure that when the neighbor is play, has a band um, that he's hired for a party playing at 1230 on a Friday night, that, that you know how to make sure that doesn't happen a second time, okay. right? So that you don't then have to say, well, I'm going to get back at that guy myself. Right. I'm going to leave my garbage cans out all weekend long, which I know he hates, right? <laughs> if you you're, feel you're secure, talking about revenge in, in ordinary life, which is where, where I think we're ha- more comfortable talking about it in terms of <laughs> warring tribes across the globe. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can take it in any... I mean, I, the, the thing I yeah. like about these principles is they're mm-hmm. scalable, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we can talk about... Actually, usually people... When, when when people ask me about the book, they're they're actually less interested in the in the high, the the geopolitical stuff. Okay. Than, so so, but I can you know. Okay. Well, no, I, yeah, we'll get there. So yeah. what's this? So what's the second after safety? Value. Uh, I, mm. We 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 are inclined to forgive individuals um, who who are likely to have benefit for us in the future. So. We find it really easy, as I was saying, to forgive our loved ones or forgive our friends or forgive our, our neighbors or our business partners because those, there's something in it for us in the future, mm-hmm. right? And the costs sometimes of, of destroying a relationship that's been damaged are just too high because establishing a new one is, is, is so difficult to do. Mm-hmm. So relationships that have value in them um, are ones in which we're naturally prone to forgive. Now I know what you're thinking. <laughs> how do you take a how do you take a valueless relationship and put value in it? Because sometimes when we're harmed by somebody, it's it's a relationship w- that we don't care about. Yeah, I mean, I'm really struck by you talk about this core principle um, that that operates and it makes sense that forgiving someone you don't like or who's different from you or who you don't feel close to is much more difficult than forgiving a friend or someone who's like you. Or someone Here, here's, you're close to. Yeah, yeah, but here, but here's okay. So, so people say, well, how do you how do you take that and use that? Here, here's what I want to know. What happens if some entrepreneur comes along, some Bill Gates type, and says, "I'm going to go to some part of the world that is rent by ethnic violence or." violence between small villages or mm-hmm. tribes or clans and says, these people are um, at war. They have been at war for ages. And they're also struggling economically. So what I'm going to do is make small micro grants available to individuals who are entrepreneurs wanting to start small businesses who could do a lot with two or three hundred dollars. But I want to make other small grants available as incentives that will give them extra funds to work with if they can establish a business partnership with an entrepreneur from this other group that they've been warring against for so long. 
right? Mm-hmm. I want to know what's wrong with that idea. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like an ex prize proposal to me. Yeah, I, I I want somebody to tell me what's wh- why that doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Why you can't take entrepreneurs who um, want to feed their families, that want to have high standards of living, um, and and tell me why they wouldn't find incentive in establishing business relationships with individuals from these other groups if there's something in it for them that makes these relationships valuable to them. Because I think this is an engine for for getting over grievances from the past um, <laughs> for the sake of, bi- of, of doing business. Well, I think it sounds cynical, and, I, and, and perhaps because we want forgiveness to be something... Uh, beautiful. It, it, I mean, it almost sounds inauthentic in terms of the way perhaps we think about what forgiveness is. Yeah, yeah. You may be you, you may be right, and I and I think perhaps that's because we we want it to be something really magical and uh, to hit us like a bolt out of the blue. And and I don't. <laughs> and and I don't. And you think... want us to tap into what in us is hardwired to do it. Exactly. Uh-huh. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. So I look around the world, and I and, and what I see is, um, I think that people are often very willing to put their grievances aside uh, when they can't do better than doing just that. Right? When that's the best course of action, mm. when when they can make a livelihood for themselves by putting those old grievances aside. Okay, now I know you have three other points, but I want to let's talk about this in terms of con- concrete challenges and you know yeah. maybe bring those in. So so here's something that's really on my mind right now and we're in an election year. Um, some of these uh, for lack of a better phrase, the phrase we've been using for a few years, moral values issues, right? Mm-hmm. You know, disagreements around, in particular, around issues of human life and human sexuality, abortion and um, homosexuality, where it's not just that um, that our political life is is divided along these lines. It's that that uh, that religious denominations are being torn apart from the inside around them. It's that people can't talk about this around the Thanksgiving table with their relatives, right? Yeah. <laughs> a, you know, you, I've heard so many stories about, uh, you know, they, they, they either don't talk about it. If they do talk about these things, an incredible anger um, arises and, uh, you know, and these cycles of anger play themselves out. So um, I wonder, as you watch that, and, and you're in the South, um, uh, you're in a politically charged state, um, how do some of these things you think about in terms of forgiveness, uh, what runs through your mind when you think about how we might come to any kind of resolution on some of these really intimate, difficult, uh, divisive issues? Well, uh, <laughs> I think we had a wonderful opportunity to do a lot of this after 9-11. Hmm. Um, it's an old. It's the old saw, right? If um, if the planet were invaded by aliens tomorrow, all of a sudden we'd have an end to all the world wars, huh. right? Because we'd have another problem to sort out, and it would be s- so much larger than we could solve 
and still maintain our, our, our grievances with each other. So we okay. put those aside. I, I think that... So there maybe is, climate change will supersede abortion cl- as a divisive issue. Climate change could do it. Right. I mean, I think on a, on a lot of these... A lot of these thorny cultural divides, what what buys you f- forgiveness or goodwill or tolerance, is an emphasis is, em- is to emphasize the commonalities, right? And when people have their ability to remember those commonalities or remember those common goals, they can have civil debates, right? I was I was pretty touched to read about what happened at the Democratic National uh, Convention with the, the delegates from Illinois. Um, evidently, in Illinois, they've been having uh, a couple of pretty bad years of, of gridlock because of animosity among some of the actors. And over over that. Oh, I. Over budget budgetary matters, mm-hmm. um, a lot of it t- evidently was was personality driven. But there's been a lot of bad blood, and this bad blood has led to some pretty unproductive politics in Illinois for a couple of years. Um, but somehow, when they got to the convention and started meeting uh, just their own delegation from Illinois, some speeches were made uh, at the podium, and ulti- ultimately, uh, one of the speakers got up and um, felt some conviction to ask for forgiveness from some of his old political enemies. And by what I've read, it sounds like there was just sort of this Niagara Falls of tears and embracing and reconciliation and apologies and hugging and uh, kind of this overwhelming desire to reconcile despite these many years of, of personal grievances with each other inside Illinois. So to me... What I think is going on there is that they get to the convention and they say, we are still members of this single party. We still care about the future of the United States. We care about the future of Illinois. And let's put – and all of a sudden, things that they can't control start coming out of their, their mouths. Hmm. Please forgive me. I'm sorry for what I said to you. I'm sorry for how I've been attacking you for the last few years. Let's, let's reconcile. And – and so wonderful things can happen when people have have to come together to, again, to cooperate to solve problems. These people want to win the presidential election in 10 weeks. And I, I tend to think that the desire to cooperate and the need to cooperate kind of overwhelmed them a couple of days ago. And they decided to, to mend these fences and try to heal these wounds. Mm-hmm. But a lot of these um, bitter moral divides in U.S. culture right now happen uh, across, we are divided in terms of along partisan lines. And so even that, you know, now these will still be too, you know, so to the extent that people who are on different sides of some of these issues fall, become, they are either part of the Republican campaign or the Democratic campaign. And so the divide is perpetuated um, through the election. Yeah. Um, there, there, there may be a time when um, the value of uh, a politics of goodwill can be sort of broadly seen again. And until then, we probably are going to do a lot of, a lot of what we've been doing, hmm. which is trying to accentuate the differences rather than 
um, accentuate the commonalities that have, have differences sort of in the middle of them. And what is it in us as human beings that drives us to accentuate the differences? What do you understand about that from your work? Uh, well, we, we do have a hard time uh, seeing things from other people's perspectives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we tend to view other people who have positions different from ours as having um, much more similarity to each other than huh. we do. We can see, we can see the, the great uh, variety in our own positions. Right? Oh, so but we can't we, see the variety in other people's positions. No, that's right. We that's tend to interesting. Paint, uh-huh. Yeah, we tend to paint them with the same brush. Okay. And so uh, we tend to really simplify positions that other, in, other groups have or hmm. people on other sides of positions. So we, we have a simplified view. We tend to actually um, uh, view, view them as more partisan and more extreme on average than the average really seems to be. Huh. And, and so, so there's something about how the mind works and how it processes groups, hmm. right? When we think about people from over there, that other group, right. that kind of causes us to not really view them with the same sort of humanity that we afford our own groups. You know, you think about an issue you feel strongly about mm-hmm. and that you, you know a lot about and you, you can say, well, actually, there's a lot of people who, who have sort of different views than mine. They're not exactly the same. And, and that allows you to view them as human beings, right? Right. right. Um, harder, to, harder to do something about the limitations of the mind or perhaps because of how the mind was actually designed to work. We have a harder time affording that kind of benefit of the doubt to other groups. So mm-hmm. if we know that, then, if we know that you know, about ourselves, right? If we can have, an, you're saying, if we can get an awareness about that, perhaps that the, is a beginning. <laughs> then, then, then you can begin to say, well, they're they're just a group of human beings too, trying to muddle their way through a position that's going to work for them, mm. and you know maybe that kind of recognition of their diversity as well can can help, and also the 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 the, the recognition that there are many positions that are less moderate than we think they all hold. Right. Then, then maybe we'll have less anxiety about interacting in a civil way. Hmm. You know, I mean, just to kind of go to the geopolitical level, um, you you tell some stories about, um, let's say, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, uh, where you have, you know, cycles, generations of grievance and revenge, kind of layered on top of each other, and. Um, and yet you tell stories, and we've all heard these kinds of stories, and I've met some of these people who are, you know, amazing, who have still moved beyond that in themselves, have reached out to people on the other side, have formed just what you said, have seen, have come to see the other group as human and um, and have formed friendship. And, um, and yet... Um, you know what, we, and and those kinds of stories don't tend to be in the headlines. I and mean, we hear the headlines of continued violence and continued animosity, right? Right. But um, from the studies you've seen, or from what you know about how these things play themselves out in different societies, I mean, what does it take? Is it possible, even say, in the Israeli-Palestinian crisis, that one day those networks reach such a critical mass that they that the balance is shifted? I mean, does it work that way? Um, how does how does that kind of collective change really happen? Uh, s- some of it happens when um, people become too tired to fight, hmm. right? Or too yeah. You tell that story in uh, northern Uganda, right? You yeah. said there's an epidemic of forgiveness that's grown out of fatigue as much as anything else. That's right. That's right. 
sometimes um, the the costs of maintaining uh, grievances are so high that individuals and group their groups will decide that they've pushed themselves to the brink. They've demonstrated their um, insistence on defending themselves, and they've shown that they will defend themselves um, to the end. And having done that, it then began, it, it becomes possible to try to find a new way. So uh, also, though, I, I think, go ahead. Well, I was just saying, would you tell the story of what's happening in northern Uganda? Is that example? So th- yeah, so so there's a group there called the Acholi, um, who uh, actually let me start over. Mm-hmm. So, so Uganda has been at war for many years, and uh, one part of the strategy of one of the rebel groups has been to um, it's a group called the Lord's Resistance Army, and it's headed by a man named Joseph Kony. And who's kind of a strange, shrouded figure, mm-hmm. uh, actually, kind of a very unusual character, um, kind of sees himself as playing sort of a messianic role, as I understand it. Um, part of their strategy has been to abduct children, boys and girls, from their villages and from their tribes and take them off in, into, the, into the woods and... Um, Essentially, brainwash them, and know, send they've them also had the children do horrible things, right, before they leave, so that they can't s- killing their own siblings, so that they can't they, they, go back. They f- they're so ashamed that their parents won't take them back, right? I mean, it's they, terrible. They, they, yes, they. I mean, they they send them back to kill their own families, right. to kill members of their own villages, their own tribes, uh, to to maim them, uh, to disfigure people unrecognizably, to cut off their ip- lips and ears and noses. Um, they, they use these. That they um, give the girls as child brides mm-hmm. to to the soldiers, and um, by through this really heartless, brutal tactic, you know they do a couple of things. One is that they they destroy the the culture mm-hmm. um, of of these these villages. They destroy their you know, the fabric of of their their own history. And they also create new, new, new foot soldiers for their army. Um, the the costs of this have been so high, both from a security point of view and from a cultural point of view, that um, many uh, of the rank and file, just regular people living in Uganda, particularly this this one group called the Acholi. Have just simply grown so tired of these cycles of violence and um, their inability to solve them using military force that they've been really pressing the government to offer amnesty, official amnesty, not only to Kony, mm. but they've been offering unofficial amnesty to any of the children, any of the sons and daughters of their own villages who've been spirited away like this and brainwashed and turned into killers. And they've, they've used radio programs, radio broadcasts, word of mouth, newspapers, really any vehicle they can get hold of to send this message out that if you will come back to your village, lay down your arms, meet with the elders, meet with the community, and work out a plan for um, demonstrating your 
your desire to rejoin us. We'll, we'll let you rejoin us as uh, a, a member of our community in good standing. And they've been coming back in, in groups uh, as large as three, four, five, nine hundred, um, laying down their guns, working out plans for reparation, right? Trying to find mm-hmm. some way to compensate victims for the harms they've caused. Um, at, at risk to themselves, mind you. I mean, mm-hmm. these, these returnees now have to worry about these villagers' own desires for revenge against them. Right. So they take a risk in coming back, mm-hmm. and yet many of them are doing it. And, and, and in part, it really is because there just isn't another way. Um, there is, they haven't found an, a, a reasonable alternative to simply offering these people access to the old ways, the old ways of solving grievances. Do you, do you think that this kind of um, development and, and there are, is inspired, empowered by, say, the example the Truth and Reconciliation Commission set, the process set in South Africa? Yeah, that's been a huge Kind of a factor. new paradigm in the world. Right. Um, the, what, 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 happens, what happened in South Africa with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and, and also the amount of attention it received mm-hmm. in the international media, mind mm-hmm. you, um, has, has, has meant that nations that have been destroyed by civil wars now see a mechanism, uh, a formal mechanism that doesn't require a trusted, trustworthy um, sort of central government in order to achieve healing. Huh. And what I mean by that is a lot of times you can't simply, when you have a civil war, you can't simply run war criminals through the old right. criminal justice system right. because it's not trusted, right? right? right. No, it, the, it's the establishment itself and, and, and citizens don't trust it. So what, what the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa managed to do was to use um, was to use an informal process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the government was involved, but it was it was a process that involved lots of input from civilians mm-hmm. um, to give give individual victims opportunities to meet with um, their perpetrators, the people that uh, were responsible for killing their loved ones, hauling them away, and um, taking away their property, imprisoning them, and so forth. And by offering some degree of leniency often to these perpetrators, the victims were able to get some truth, right? Right. They were able to get laid down in an official record what happened, what were the crimes that were committed, so that there can't be any denial of them again. Um, And, you know, what was striking to me in reading your research, like what what you what we are learning um, from psychological research and brain science, is how the truth and reconciliation was so compatible with that, right? Um, yeah. First of all, this very central um, uh, assumption they made awareness that victims and that we all have the capacity within us to be both victims and perpetrators, right? What, you know, what you're describing, that revenge, that this, that this capacity for revenge, that we're all hardwired for that. Um, and then also, I mean, I've interviewed people who were on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, including a psychologist and, uh, this African, this notion of Ubuntu, Mm -hmm. of the, of the interconnected humanity, 
which really came to the surface. You know, so speaking to yes. that, to what you've talked about, this essential element in forgiveness is that it's so much easier to forgive people to whom we feel we are, with whom we feel we are in relationship. Right. And the South Africans were able to surface that feeling almost nationally. And it really, it, it jives with everything you've told me about what we're learning um, yeah. scientifically. It's, it's, it's so interesting how some of these, these informal interventions that people come up with really match well with how the mind seems to have been outfitted with, with a forgiveness Well, instinct. and really, if you think of it, it's in, it there's, there should be some instinct towards that, shouldn't there? I mean, whether sure. we've known how to describe it or not. That's right. That's right. And 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 again, you know, I I think you're right to point at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission for its ingenuity in this way. What it did recognize is that people are um, have a have a have an appetite for just desserts, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the Truth Recon- and Reconciliation Commission did not deny that. And that people right? who have been harmed can then become capable of the same kinds of doing the same kinds of violence. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. And they didn't give free passes. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is important. Truth and reconciliation commissions, although they might offer incentives to per- perpetrators to come and, and explain what they did and literally where the bodies are buried in some cases, they don't get they don't get uh, get out of jail free cards. Right. Mm-hmm. People still experience um, jail. T- they, they still have jail time before them, sometimes hard time. Um, and even those who who maybe get off without uh, imprisonment, you know, they lose their impunity. They lose their moral standing. They have to sacrifice their their image in the world as moral, morally blameless creatures. Mm-hmm. They have to admit what they've done. So they lose a lot. They sacrifice a lot. They don't they don't lose a loved one like the victims do. But but they do. But there are costs, and I, I I think it's important to 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 emphasize that those costs mean something to victims. To know mm-hmm. that a a perpetrator has had to do some suffering themselves actually goes some distance towards satisfying that brain's craving, hmm. but short of full revenge. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have about ten or fifteen minutes left, and I'd like to try to be really concrete in this time we have left in terms of practical steps for our, for people who are listening. Yeah. You know, you, you know a lot on the basis of, you know, case studies and, um, and science and, uh, you know, what, what place could this, this word forgiveness have in how we think about the war on terror or, uh, What's what? Ha- what is going to ha- continue to unfold in Iraq? Right. Well, um, you want to you want to start at the practical how tos for individual life, or do you want to let's wanna, start with Iraq and then go to the practical yeah. how tos for life? Okay, sure. Well, I mean, I mean, one of the things that that that's that's going to happen in Iraq um, is that that government is going to get stabilized, and. Uh, if it if it well if the government there gets stabilized and on its feet again, it's going to begin to be effective again at enforcing the rule of law. Mm-hmm. Our biggest problem in Iraq right now, as 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 lots of people are aware, is is the fight the infighting among factions and sects and 
tr- old tribal groups for power. Mm-hmm. So when when we came in and disrupted the existing um, power base, what it did is it caused people to turn back to those old tribal alliances for security. Right. This is and, a really interesting point you make that strong governments. Um, and it cuts both directions. Even repressive governments um, squelch or kind of take on all that revenge function, right? That's right. And yep. so, and that helps me understand why sometimes when you have terrible regimes fall apart, the Soviet Union or um, or Saddam Hussein's regime, you you then, but even even in South Africa, some of these d- rivalries, these kind of primitive rivalries, if you want to call it that, um, come to the surface. That's right. Um, I, I like to ask people to look out their windows in their office or their homes and imagine what your life would look like if the police and the National Guard and the fire department and the paramedics stopped working tomorrow because of a natural disaster. How would you... D- people are hungry. People are... Uh, they have needs. And... Um, how would you put security into place yourself? What you would do is you would probably find your friends and find your family hmm. and you'd circle the wagons. Hmm. People are going to create some kind of structures around themselves for maintaining security when governments can't do that for them. Okay. So so in Iraq, that's what we're seeing. We're seeing mm-hmm. we're seeing the uh, we listen, we we replaced one of the truly awful dictators of the late 20th century when we removed Saddam Hussein. However, he was he was repressive. Mm -hmm. He um, he killed thousands and thousands of his own people. You know, you know the story there. And yet we it is also true that when we when we did that and particularly when we disbanded the army, we did away with the only uh, only structure that was capable of holding a lot of very old tribal and ethnic and sectarian grudges in check. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so, so you're saying that the best thing we America could do to foster the the flourishing of this lovely virtue of forgiveness <laughs> in Iraq is support the creation of a strong, stable government. I, I think I think that is is what what is is called for there. Hmm. Um, I mean, the the thing the thing about Iraq, as I understand it, and I don't profess to be an expert by any means, is that it's had wonderful periods of peace, mm-hmm. wonderful periods of people cooperating and coexisting, despite all of these differences that we're talking about today, because they were safe. They could live the lives they wanted with respect, and they could thrive and experience economic growth. And they had all the wonderful things that we enjoy today here in the United States that uh, also allow us to have a high level of tolerance for Mm -hmm. each other. Mm -hmm. So those, that, that same level of tolerance can, can be brought back. Um, It's not as if, um, it's not as if that's that's um, a part of Iraq's history that it will never see again. It will yeah. see it again if the right uh, institutions can be put back together. So, in terms of what average people can do in in the course of you know more ordinary lives, um, uh, let me ask you the question this way: I mean, how do you think you live differently? How do you conduct yourself differently with um, people you? 
fundamentally disagree with on on important social issues with irritating people at work. Um, how do you conduct yourself differently because of this, what you know scientifically and this research you do? Yeah, the, the, the thing that, that I have realized um, is, is that you can, you can many times, if, if you've been harmed by somebody, you don't have any choice but to try to forgive it on your own because the person's gone, the person's dead, mm-hmm. the person will have nothing to do with you. Right. Um, there's just no bridge there. But in lots and lots of cases, forgiveness is just a conversation away. I mean, there are so many people, if you ask them about the hurt that they remember from um, junior high or high school, (laughs) what you often find is there was never any conversation back with that person who harmed them. And so... um, it, the conclusion I've come to is, in many, many cases, if you want forgiveness, if you want to forgive or if you want to be forgiven, you need to go out there and get it for yourself. And the way you go out and get it for yourself is by trying to have the kind of conversation with the person you hurt that you want to have. Um, in, in my family, we, we, we apologize about a lot. Uh, and your apology and, is an important concept for you. You say that it really, even biologically, it's important for us. Apology is really important because that's when, when I apologize to you for something I've done, you see me squirming. Mm. <laughs> you see me uncomfortable. You see me trying to reassure you that I'm not going to harm you in the same way again. You see me giving you respect as a human being with feelings. And all of a sudden... I've given you a. I've turned on a lot of the slider switches that make forgiveness happen in your head. It's almost also that you've made it the next best thing to revenge. That's right. That's right. <laughs> it's fulfilled some you, of those needs we have. You, oh, there are so many people mm-hmm. who, once they see someone who's harmed them, cry and sh- experience shame and experience humiliation for, for the way they they behaved. Suddenly, it's the forgiver who's doing the healing. Right? Mm-hmm. Who's reaching out to the, the perpetrator? This happens so many times. Um, all, all, all people often need is this kind of vigorous conversation about the past. Now, this isn't this. If, if if this were so easy, people would have be doing it already. <laughs> right, so, right. so I don't pretend that. But but at the same time, I really think. Um, we sh- we can't lose sight of um, the 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 value of kind of getting in each other's business a little bit and getting in each mm-hmm. other's lives a little bit and being willing to try to make things a little bit uncomfortable and a little bit messy in the service of making them better. Mm-hmm. I've wondered as I was reading your work um, just about this basic principle that it is it does become easier to forgive when there is a human relationship, when you perceive um, that you are connected to another person in some way and that that relationship has value. I've, I've wondered if this new generation coming up is going to be perhaps better equipped, whether they're going to kind of bring an evolutionary mm. step forward, just because the world, you know, interconnectedness is not an abstract concept anymore in so many yeah. ways to the young. I, right. I mean, that's that's one direction it can go. One one direction is that we see 
easier and easier communication happening mm-hmm. so that it is easier and easier to reach out to people who seem different from you mm-hmm. um, or who are on the other side of the planet. And so that's that's bound to put a um, put a check in the forgiveness side of the scorecard. Um, but but it has to be interconnectedness of a certain kind. I mean, you know, the 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 things that appeal to the human mind and its its instinct to forgive um, are have some flesh and bone to them, right? They some um, more. Well, we need to see emotion, right? Emotions go a long way in appealing to the forgiveness instinct. Okay. Um, I mean, words can do that, right? You can type an email and make that happen. Yeah. Um, but um, there are certain things about expressions of shame and embarrassment uh, that you can pick up on the face. And when people know that somebody's uh, a perpetrator is experiencing these emotions, it tells you it, it, that, hey, I can trust this person's intentions in the future because they really are aggrieved by their behavior from the past. Mm-hmm. So people are really... People can be really lenient um, and really forgiving and really tolerant when they know that an, a perpetrator is is not faking it, is not going through the motions. So interconnectedness is great, um, but it's 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 also got to have that um, it's 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 got to have that connection to to flesh and blood as well. I think. And what about how do conditions get created for people to forgive? even when the perpetrator is not going to apologize and is not going to squirm and be ashamed. Krista, can I say one more thing about yeah, yeah, interconnectedness? Sure, sure. Uh-huh. There's another thing about interconnectedness that's, that's really important. And uh, one, of the, one of the things that seems to be favoring more cooperation in human beings' future is that we're more cosmopolitan than ever. We have so much experience with people from other cultures that even 50 years ago would have just been unheard of. Right. You know, uh, that, that, that 200 years ago would have been um, some, the, the stuff of fairy tale. Yeah. I mean, th- the fact that we can easily communicate with people on the other side of the world, um, that, that the prices of travel have dropped as, as dramatically as they have, our ability to sink ourselves into fiction because there's translations of um, you know, great modern mm. works of fiction in mm-hmm. Arabic and mm-hmm. in French and every language. It's all here for us that we can experience many different ways of life um, in a way that's, that's really unprecedented. And that kind of ability to relate, uh, to get into the heads of people from other societies, I think really is leading to a future in which strangers can't, uh, can't be quickly and easily assigned over to the enemy's pile. So I'm very optimistic uh, that our future holds much easier forgiveness for us because we are more worldly and we are more interconnected than we've ever been. And I mean, I sense, again, when if you just read the headlines, you read about what's what's going wrong in the world today. What are the what are the worst, most entrenched crises? I do sense from your research where you kind of try to take a global view and look at civil wars that have happened in recent years that have been resolved. I mean, that you... You kind of feel that there is progress, that on balance there's more reconciliation happening. Is, is that right? Is that? Yeah. Cause I don't, I'm so up. Yeah. Go ahead. It's hard, well, it's hard, it's hard to get that impression just as a layperson just reading the newspaper. Right. I, I mean, I'm so optimistic about our future. Uh, 
because if you again, if you look at that long arc of history, as you suggest, what you see is, for example, the homicide rate. We worry about the homicide rate, as we should. It goes up some years, it goes down other years, and 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 we 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 worry. But uh, over the long arc of history, you take Western Europe, homicide rates are a twentieth, and in some countries a fiftieth of what they were six eight hundred years ago. Right. So if we take this long perspective, what it seems to be happening is actually we're getting better and better control over human beings potential for aggressiveness. And a lot of that homicide six, eight hundred years ago was, in fact, vengeance motivated. Mm-hmm. But, but when we get control of those instincts and we give people other tools um, to deal with their grievances, they, they will restrain themselves. So I, Iraq may look dismal to some. Um, it's it's certainly unpleasant, and um, it's it's uh, been a terrible a, 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 you know been terrible for our, our country and the world in so many ways. And yet, I see coming out of it, whenever that is, a society that's going to rebuild itself into a peaceful society. I don't know how long it will take. It's not my. It's above my pay grade, mm-hmm. as they say, but. Um, but this is what societies tend to do. They tend to find the best way for um, to, to, to rebuild in the aftermath of these kinds of collapses in ways that will promote cooperation. And you're really saying that it, on the basis of lots of research, aren't you? I mean, case studies and, and science and social scientific research. I just, you know, it's not just wishful thinking. I mean, you're... If you, I mean, if you put societal structures in place where people are protect, where people feel their rights are protected, and they feel um, that that they they see a way forward for making a living in a, in a peaceful way, and you mm-hmm. put incentives in place like that where there's security, um, they they prefer peace over war mm-hmm. every time. Mm-hmm. So we we know how to do that. Um, I I don't uh, have strong beliefs, for example, about free trade because of some ideological background of mine. I'm just mm-hmm. a psychologist working in a lab. But I have become such a, a fan of free trade. Um, and Not the free trade that we pretend we sometimes have now because mm-hmm. we don't really have it. We have free trade with lots of exceptions. But when people can um, tie up their economic fate with the economic fate of another country, it just isn't in their interest, their self-interest, hmm. to hurl bombs at each other. Right, and there's one of those geopolitical economic realities that, again, bears out some of the basic things you're learning about when our forgiveness instinct can be activated biologically. You're tolerant. You, we're, we're tolerant and forgiving when we're dealing with other actors that mm-hmm. we depend on for our own well-being. Mm-hmm. And, and we'll do it with smiles on our faces. I mean, that, this isn't a grit, grit your teeth and forgive. Right, right. This is, we kind of like those people, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we get along with them. Uh, we like their minivans. They like the services we provide. Um, and we, 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 they, they, they like our agriculture. We like their milk. You know, these, these, these seem like really basic kinds of um, considerations, but you can build self-interest. You can, you can build c- concern for others out of these really simple parts mm-hmm. because I think this is what the mind was designed to do. Hmm. 
Linda, my last question, um, what seems really important to you? You said you have a seven-year-old son, you have one yeah. child. So no, what, we have two, actually. Two. So what, from all the, everything you know, I mean, what, what feels really important for you to pass on to your children practically? Um, in terms yeah, of, I yeah. mean, for, uh, I, have a, I have a four-year-old daughter who's, who's um, a little bit too young for this still, but with, mm-hmm. with, our, with our seven-year-old, I, I really have tried to encourage him to be vigorous about um, acknowledging his mistakes and um, the harms that he causes his friends. And whether that's just a careless word or excluding somebody from a game or whatever, mm. because so much of forgiveness comes down to interaction. It comes down to knowing that an offender is not the person you thought he was when he hurt you or she was when she mm. hurt you. Mm. It's changing that perception. So I try to, I, it's simple things, but we try to, we try to teach him that uh, what someone needs after they've been, had their feelings hurt. And we think if, if, you, if, if we can explain to him what, what the mind needs after, after someone's been offended, then I, we can teach him how to be vigorous and not, not worry about looking, um, um, having to look like he's right all the time right. or having to look like he's perfect or he, he uh, denying his mistakes. If, if he can own up to them, that that's a, that's a vigorous, healthy way to keep his friendships intact. Hmm. Um, okay. Um, I have a couple quick questions from behind the glass. I, I do want to, I, I was, was going to, I had my, um, did you want to say something else? Did, I wasn't sure if I cut you off. Hello? Oh, no, I'm, I'm, hey, I'm here. Okay. I'm, I'm good right now. Okay. Um, all right, let me get this behind the glass and I'll see what it was that I, yeah. uh-huh. I know. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. I don't know if we can do that right now. Yeah. I just don't think... Yeah. Um... Oh, I had I, something came to me while you were saying that, and I and I don't know what it was. Um, can't can yeah. Oh, I know. Um, <coughs> so can can forgiveness be measured in the brain the way re- revenge can be measured in the brain? Yeah, um, we we aren't there yet. Um, just because uh, violence has been the the more interesting topic for for social scientists, I guess, mm-hmm. um, than the more tender parts of, of human nature. Okay. Um, but I suspect what we're going to see is uh, when, we, when we get that forgiveness in the laboratory and we can look at uh, forgiveness in the brain, well, if, if, if I, had to, if I had, a, had to tell you my hunch, I, I'd suspect we'd see um, a brain that is um, experiencing... The same kind of prospect of reward, but um, not um, being driven by the desire to harm, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, There'd Mm -hmm. be reward from harming, but reward from restoring relationship. Mm -hmm. 
So um, it would look a little bit like a brain on revenge, but being driven driven by the the prospect of a different kind of reward, hmm. the reward that comes from um, uh, reconnecting with an old friend, yeah. or uh, getting a getting a business relationship back on tra- track, hmm. or the satisfaction that comes from knowing that your your kids went to bed happy after having spent the last 20 minutes clobbering each other. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> right. So, um, you know, I think a simplistic view, and you kind of touch on this in your book of what religion can do in terms of forgiveness is, you know, I, I think there's been a sense that, say, for example, that maybe Christianity you know, invented forgiveness, offers forgiveness yeah. to the world. And when I look at all your research and have this conversation with you, it seems to me that in terms of what, where religion can play a constructive role in this, um, and religion is also often implicated in places where there's terrible violence going on, but, but is perhaps um, not in the, f- f- in the first instance teaching forgiveness, but, um, but some of the teachings that come out of religious traditions about caring for the other, about yeah. caring for the stranger. Um, That's right. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I I think one of the one of the best things we can do with uh, with religious faith is give people an appetite for difference. Um, and the major world religions all have the resources for doing this, mm-hmm. for getting people excited about people who are different from them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's not every it's not every brand right that 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 exercises that prerogative, but in the scriptures and tr- traditions of every every world religion that is has been successful on a grand scale, um, there is there is a story there about um, the love of difference mm-hmm. and compassion the, towards difference. Right, compassion toward difference. Mm-hmm. Um, Caring for the strangers in your midst, mm-hmm. um, being able to see beyond superficial differences toward the essential commonalities. Right. Um, religion is uh, also good at um, speaking to people, appealing to people's meaner sides and uh, the, the more brutish side, and the resources are there for both. Hmm. So it's really up to those people who have. Um, uh, a passion for reconciliation in their own faiths mm-hmm. to make sure that the right um, the right tones are struck and the others are a little bit more muted. Something that I've become I've been aware of also is that this word forgiveness I think has a really Christian ring in many ears. But I'm I've been very intrigued at uh, you know I remember speaking with a Holocaust survivor who said that you know for him the word forgiveness just didn't do it and it's. It has this cultural connotation of forgive and forget, but the Jewish phrase "repair the world," you know, compels mm. him in the same way he feels the word forgiveness compels Christians. I like that. I like that. Um, I wish we could come up with a, a completely new word for what this this human trait is, uh, uh, other than forgiveness. Yeah, or maybe 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 find some new way to, 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 to talk about it so that we can unload a little bit of the baggage hmm. from the past. Mm-hmm. Because uh, some of the baggage is that it's, it's sort of a, a namby-pamby thing that doormats do or wimps do or right. um, you know, only sort of milquetoast uh, types of people are interested in. But um, 
from everything I've, I've managed to read and see and understand in my own work and in the course of working on Beyond Revenge, it's that forgiveness is a, a brawny, muscular um, exercise um, that um, I kind of imagine um, sort of a, a Falstaff sort of character, uh, <laughs> someone with a great passion for life and a great um, sort of hearty sort of uh, disposition um, kind of being able to take on. Wow. And you're, you really feel that it's essential to our geopolitical future, right, as well as our the health of our individual lives. It's just too important. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's just too important. And, and the doors are open now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the doors are open for the use of this kind of language, language in the public sphere. Mm-hmm. Um, Great. Well, those are wonderful last words. Um, I kept you a little while, but uh, it's a terrific conversation. So, um, did, it, did, it, did that work for you? Yeah, it works for me. You got some me. stuff you can work yeah. with? Okay, yeah. um, great. You, I don't know who you've been. Um, you've been talking to Colleen. Our producer yeah. Colleen. So she, we may have some questions, or and she'll she'll be in touch with you, and she'll let you know what's happening with this. And so we'll keep you completely on track. That sounds great. Okay, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. I enjoyed it. Yeah, great. I did too. Thanks, Krista. Bye now. <laughs>